from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. June 20th. Jenks felt a sick, twisting feeling in the pit of his stomach. It was impossible. They couldn't know. Couldn't have discovered. This couldn't be happening to him. Hello, welcome to another episode of For Christ's Sake. I'm 50% of your hosts, and my name is Hugh, and I'm joined, as always, by my non-compatriot. Your better, your better half. My better half, Hunter. That's me. Mason. And Hugh, what 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 is your uh, what is, what is accompanying you on this Crichton voyage this week, as it does every week? Well, once more, I have paired the debut novel from our favourite author with a stout glass of crisp dry white, <laughs> and uh, a bowl full of banana cream biscuits. Mm. <laughs> How about you? Well, uh, Hugh, remember when we. We talked about uh, doing a signature snack and drink that we would keep for the entirety of the podcast. I do. Early books. Well, uh, I'm sorry to say that this week, due to uh, circumstances beyond my control, I was forced to deviate from that goal. Explain. Well, uh, so far, I'd been drinking a women, uh, sorry, a gin sour. Um, but this week, when I was about to go make for the gin sour, I realized that the women's that we had uh, were, in fact, bad and old and gross and I couldn't use them to make my drink so instead I made a uh, I, I basically invented a cocktail I used I made a gin screwdriver and I added some uh, dashes of bitters to it to make it you know a little, little more fun uh, and <laughs> instead of having crackers which is my normal thing I was gonna have crackers but unfortunately I ate all of the crackers at this box before uh uh, we started this podcast, so I had to oh go to my secondary snack, which is uh, Captain Crunch cereal. So, <laughs> should be a good one. Wow. So, were these circumstances really outside of your control? If you were prepared for the recording of this podcast, you would have checked your supplies in advance and made sure that you were prepared. And then that if, if these lemons had indeed gone bad, that you had an opportunity to go out and secure more lemons before the podcast commenced. You know what, Hugh? You're right. I guess I guess I just don't really care that much about this podcast. You're hardly a Jenks, right? You, you said I you said I was the <laughs> Peter and you were the Jenks, but I think it's the reverse. <laughs> well, I think that I think the more accurate description would be you, you're the Jenks and I'm the Miguel. Okay, let's go with that. I used a computer program to make sure that I had sufficient supplies for this episode. <laughs> Use a computer program to devise the best possible podcast of all time. Uh, so, Hugh, before we um, follow up your uh, oral rendition of the paragraph, the paragraph that opened this chapter, uh, we have to catch our listeners up 
with our characters and what they're doing before the beginning of this chapter. Mm. Um, just give them a quick, uh, you know, summary of the last one and just uh, so I can segue quickly into talk about this one. So uh, I don't remember much about the last chapter, except for it was very short. It didn't really have anything of consequence, except that the ending um, uh, left it on a bit of a cliffhanger where Jinx is talking to the manager of the hotel arena and uh, into the room bursts a police officer with mysterious intentions. Yeah, so specifically, um, Jinx was inquiring about how the hotel would be able to handle some sort of function, right? And uh, the hotel manager said, well, there's your answer, as the policeman walks in the door. This yes. is kind of a baffling end to that chapter. Have they been discovered? And indeed, as you heard <laughs> from the opening of this chapter, afternoon Tuesday the 20th, those same thoughts are running through Jenks's panicked head mm. this very moment. That's all we need to really catch up on, really. Yeah. So they were still planning everything. Everything's going to plan. The only wrinkles are Alan Brady, I would say, mm. and whatever is going on with this policeman who has just burst into the manager's office. Mm. So what happens? Why is the policeman there? Well, you, you might think that having a, a tense cliffhanger might lead to some sort of sustained suspense sequence or... A prolonged little bit of uh, narrative confusion. Why is this policeman there? Um, but uh, luckily for us, I guess, uh, Crichton uh, resolves this, uh, you know, holdover of tension in about two paragraphs, because uh, it turns out that the policeman is there in order to, because the uh, arena is hosting uh, on the day of the heist, uh, which is uh, Sunday, I believe, June 21st, a function for a police commissioner right i thought the heist is on saturday no maybe it is on saturday whatever day is subsequent to this one saturday i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up yeah you're right thank you uh the police commissioner's daughter is getting married and they want to host a reception at the hotel arena so that's the answer to that question (laughs) It transpires that uh, in the traditional Spanish fashion that they have given the hotel all but two days notice um, to make accommodations for them. And suddenly a whole swarm of police folk have overwhelmed the hotel and spooked our heisters to be. Mm. Well, I was going to issue a quick correction um, to your uh, proclamation that this is in the traditional Spanish fashion. It's definitely in the traditional Spanish faction, a la Michael Crichton. <laughs> yes. I was adopting the perspective of the novel. Mm. Just as the narrator in the novel sometimes adopts the perspective of the characters, as we've talked about at length on previous episodes. So um, Jinx does not keep this information bound within himself. Brian comes up to him in the bar, and Jinx is like, why are you coming up to me? There's nothing to worry about. The police are here on an unrelated matter. But I think, I think we should be clear here. It's... Jenks is still panicked. There's still a lot of tension within him, and he needs some method of releasing that tension fast. Uh, but before before we get to that that method of releasing tension, um, there's a uh, a bit that's not notable in any way, except for it has a, a passage that I'd be interested in reading out. Okay. But before we do that, we gotta set up the uh, the scene a little bit, which is that uh, from Brian talking to Jinx at the bar and. Jinx telling him to fuck off and that the police are no big deal. 
we get a very short, uh, very pointless little scene with Miguel in the elevator. Who And he's like, why are there cops here? But who should step into the elevator, Hugh? But uh, the film's, I think at this point, uh, it's safe to describe her as the, or the book's primary female character, Miss Jenny. Then this little uh, bit of uh, prose occurs. Are you ready? I'm ready. For crying out loud. Can I do <laughs> Thank your you. rendition of For Crying Out Loud? For crying out loud. There it is. Kind of going, going for uh, Mark Maron there a little bit. <laughs> oh, but it's shit my pants. Is that, is that right? <laughs> Lock the gates. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For crying out loud. Who are you guys? Oh, my, my cats. You don't see that fucking loser going through Michael Crichton <laughs> chapter by chapter, do you? No, he's just talking to other losers like himself. That's right. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. He's riding and proud. Come on, let's hear it right about now. Feel crying out loud. She gave him an icy nod and walked quickly away. She wore high heels and a steel blue dress of white wool, rather tight and thin. He could see her rear end move enticingly through the cloth. <laughs> the twin hemispheres of her buttocks were clearly defined, with none of the blurred smoothness that came from the girdle. She was wearing nothing under that dress. I highlighted the same passage. <laughs> <laughs> As indicated by my reading out loud, I was not able to contain my laughter after I read that. Just like a girdle would not be able to contain a particularly ample set of buttocks. Hmm. Apparently. <laughs> well, I don't quite understand this at all, in, in fact. I don't understand this, is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Neither do I. So I kind of understand that I guess if you're wearing a girdle, it's going to affect the shape of your curves to some extent. Yeah. But I also thought that was for your stomach. But yeah, it is, it is around your stomach. Yeah, so why would that affect your ass? I don't understand how it would lead to a blurred smoothness in the buttock region. <laughs> Um, you, I must admit, neither do I. This is, this is getting a bit metaphysical. <laughs> also, I, I also don't, uh, I can't really make the logical leap between, you know, looking at a woman. Okay. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start objectifying this woman. Sure, sure, sure. So Miguel is doing that. And then he's like, okay, she's not wearing a girdle. Ergo, uh, ipso facto, she must be wearing nothing under that dress. <laughs> I don't really get how he could come to that conclusion. <laughs> I can understand, you know, not seeing a bra or something like that, but I think that the assumption that most people make when they encounter other people in their lives is that they're wearing underwear, right? But this could have been the omniscient narrator stepping in at this point and saying, definitively, she's wearing nothing under that dress. That's true. But uh, I think that describing uh, a woman's butt as the twin hemispheres of her buttocks is completely insane. Uh, And I think that uh, it's... It, it almost feels like quaint, you know, hmm. uh, obviously this whole uh, this character is is horrifyingly uh, written. I think we can both agree on that. Yeah. Um, but there is something amusing about how like how transparently male gazy she is, you know? Yeah. So uh, I thought it would be uh, interesting uh, experiment to introduce a new segment to the show. Um, the title of which I suggested might be uh, Crichton, uh, what is it? 
I didn't understand the reference, actually. You need to explain that to me. Uh, it's a reference to J- Julius Caesar. Yes. Uh, there's a famous speech that uh, Mark Anthony gives where he says, Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. Okay. So the pun on that would be Crichton havoc, yeah? Okay. And because we'd be doing some acting. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I think the next scene, uh, <laughs> which uh, comprises the dominant majority of the chapter, uh, is uh, really <laughs> crazy and... I think I might benefit from a live uh, uh, enactment of us. Would you Would you agree with this opinion? I'm happy to comply. Okay. Uh, so the, the question is, which one of us plays uh, Jenny and which one of us plays Jinx slash the narrator? Well, it was your idea. You get first dibs. <laughs> I suppose I'll be. I suppose I'll be Jinx. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So let's just set this up again. Um, I teased this earlier. So essentially what's happened in this chapter is that, you know, Jenks has had this panic attack over the presence of policemen in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, you know, he's worrying, maybe we've been found out. This this is impossible. I've planned everything perfectly with my computer. How can this happen? I'm such a genius. And it turns out, oh, it's nothing to do with them. It's unrelated. They're going to have a function for the daughter of a police commissioner or whatever. So then he's like, oh, God, whoa, that was a relief. You know, that was that was a close call. I'm all tense. I'm all built up. I'm all worked up. What am I going to do now? I can't, think about, I can't think about the plan anymore. He needs a way of uh, getting rid of that excess tension so he can return to his cool-headed self. Unfortunately, he has already primed another party to assist him in his endeavors. But luckily, he's forgotten about her, too. So she is the ideal specimen to relieve his tension. Indeed. And by the time he returns to his hotel room door, he finds that she is already there, Mm. having complied with an earlier arrangement that they had made together, and for which he's in fact late. So where does it start? Uh, It starts with the jinx. Oh, yeah, okay. Are you ready? This is a fucking terrible scene. (laughs) Okay. Do you have a a Ginny voice? (laughs) We'll see. She's she's American? Yeah. Okay. I think I think she's supposed to be Southern too. Ooh. So we're doing <laughs> accents? Well, I'm not gonna do an accent because I'm playing Jinx who's you know, red blooded American. So. Yeah, but America's not a one big accent. There's many yeah, well, regions. I'm, 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 I'm gonna do a voice that's distinct I'm gonna do a voice that's distinct between the narration and Jinx, obviously. Okay. So Jinx has to sound <laughs> quite educated. I think you might have spent some time in England, so there might be a bit of a transatlantic vibe going on. I'm not not gonna get too far into this. We'll see. Okay, let's go. had walked upstairs, looking down through the well at the black and white checkered floor of the lobby below. He was still thinking, still revising his plans, still considering possibilities. He had forgotten Jenny until he came to his door, found her standing outside, impatiently tapping her foot on the floor. They had arranged to meet at three, he remembered now. Seeing her, he felt the tension of the last half hour rise in him, and he knew he needed something to take his mind off the project. Sorry, he said, unlocking the door. You're humble, sir. Right 
shittiest dialogue <laughs> so far. And just a uh, heavy uh, uh, specter of uh, sexual assault, I think, over this whole little piece. No, but they clarified there's such a thing as submitting of your own free will. I'm not saying that people can't have consensual sex that involves one partner being dominant and another partner being submissive. That is, of course, a normal sexual practice. What I'm saying makes this chapter, this little subsection, a little rapey, is the fact that uh, she says no and then tries to leave. And then he's like, you cannot leave. I control you. And that, like, the way he refers to his manipulation of her is mm. as a treatment, mm. which is kind of or creepy. Game. <laughs> yeah. That's a thread that's gone throughout the novel so far in terms of his manipulation of her up to this point. It seemed a bit unnecessary. Like, she was, like, throwing herself at him while they were driving around. And if his end goal was just to fuck her regardless, why go through all this nonsense? Clearly the thing that he desires is not her. He doesn't care about sex. He cares about having power over her. The fact that Jinx is... I mean, he's basically a psychopath. I think we could both agree on that. Mm -hmm. And even unlike some of the other male characters who seem to have more of an attachment to the women in their lives, uh, there's something... Pretty disgusting about the way he treats Ginny and the way that Crichton writes him and the way that he seems to uh, act as a sort of, um, you know, avatar for him to some degree. How old is Jenks? He's like a 40-year-old, 40-odd-year-old man at this point. Yep. Jenny is like depicted as basically a schoolgirl. She's in college, so. Okay. But, there, yeah, there's a enormous age difference between them. That is unremarked upon by Mr. Crichton. Or Mr. Wand, sorry. Yeah, so all in all, a troubling sequence. And unfortunately, that is the portion of the novel that dominates the majority of this chapter. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the, the narrator describes her as a child in this scene, I thought was pretty disturbing, too. Yeah, that's the bit I, I highlighted a number of passages and then we ended up just covering the whole thing because we <laughs> dramatically enacted it. Mm, in our new segment. Yeah, like the, the line, he lifted her effortlessly. He lifted her effortlessly as if she were a child. And I mean, that in isolation isn't so troubling, but there's been a, a, a cumulative effect um, mm. instilled by Mr. Lange <laughs> when he's talking about women and comparing them to children and infants. That makes that troubling. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it really soured my enjoyment of this novel to some degree. <laughs> I mean, it, it is objectively hilarious how like terribly this sequence is written. It is a terrible, it is a terrible sequence. And I'm willing to defend his prose in other places, but it's truly terrible here. Uh, let's see. What, what else is in this chapter? Uh, there's a scene with Annette and Brian, uh, which I, uh, I kind of enjoyed. I thought it was also pretty funny because it features some uh, light political commentary from Mr. Crichton. That's right. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't want to read more of his text necessarily, but I did find this scene to be pretty funny. Hmm. This this particular line, uh, if I can indulge it a little bit more of, for crying out loud. So, Brian and Annette meet in a hotel room. He questions her about exactly what is going on with these police officers to get a bit more information from someone on the staff. And then they start talking about Spain in general and its police force. Now, this little bit of prose inserts itself into my brain. That was Spain. It was a police state in an oppressive dictatorship. The people did not like it, and they vented their resentment whenever they could, which is seldom. It's not that was kind of a bizarre thing to write into this book. Mm. 
Um, so that's that little subsection. Not much to it, really. And then um, there's one more little bit with um, Miguel, uh, Brian, and Jinx, where Miguel gives Jinx the dynamite. And then they're like, we got good odds. Despite the police, everything is fine. And that's basically the end of the chapter. I think I think they do establish that the um, the wedding of the police commissioner's daughter is going to take place between like three in the afternoon and seven at night or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. So it doesn't interfere with their plans of uh, robbing the hotel later on that night. Yeah. Otherwise, they would have had to reschedule. But things yeah. can go according to plan at this point. That's true. That's true. That's it for this episode of For Christ's Sake. Join us shortly, within a few days, for the next exciting installment. Uh, and we, we uh, have to say, again, uh, this chapter uh, is awful, and Michael Crichton is a bad person for writing it. And I think that's about it.